All right, so it is a new year, and today we begin a new series, and the new series is called Mind Your Own Busyness. Last week, I told you the reason why I wanted to cover this topic, the topic of busyness in January, is because there is like a sort of a time crunch for some of us that, that happens in January. Uh, for some of you, you're back to work, right? That you took some time off for all the holidays, and then now your schedule's full again because you had to get back to normal life. For some of you, you took a few days off. For, uh, for Christmas, and for some of you, you took like a week off for Christmas. I think maybe some of you got a couple of weeks off for Christmas, but now like things are back to normal and you're back to being busy again. There are some of you that have extra busyness on top of that. Perhaps there are some of you that you need to work a little bit harder in January and February because you need to pay off some debts for some things you bought back in December. Is that possible that that's true? I mean, you don't have to admit it if you want, be honest, like uh, it's just church, but... but uh, <laughs> I bet there are some people in this room that spent money that they had not yet earned in December and thought, I will pay it back later, and here it is later, and beginning now in January, you may have to take some extra jobs or some extra gigs or whatever it is in order to pay off um, debts that you have. There may be some of you that you have some time debts when January hits rather than money debts. By time debts, I mean like uh, things that you committed to yourself to in November and December that you will put off until after the new year, right? Do we have a lot of those? I feel like that's a common thing right around when Thanksgiving and Christmas hit that we start saying things to people like, oh, yeah, 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 I'll do that like after Christmas. Like come back to me after Christmas and like, yeah, I'll show up for that. Oh, after the new year, I will definitely do that. Not right now. Things are kind of crazy because of the holidays, but at the new year, yeah, I'm going to do that. Well, it's here now. And so for a lot of you, if you're going to be a man of your word or a woman of your word, you now have these extra things that you said you would do. And so you've got your work, and then you've got the debts that you have to pay off, and then you've got the commitments that you've made. And then some of you, on top of all that, have resolutions that you made because it was a new year. Um, I think I read online that 40% of Americans make New Year's resolutions. And a lot of those take up time out of our lives. Not all of them. If your New Year's resolution was like to quit smoking or quit cussing, that doesn't take any extra time. Um, but if... It was, I'm going to work out three days a week, or I'm going to work out five days a week, or I'm going to read my Bible more, or we're going to go to church way more often now, or I'm going to download this app on my phone, and I'm going to learn German in 15 minutes a day, or whatever it is that you decided to do, that stuff takes up extra time. And so when you combine it all with, I'm back to work, and I got bills that I got to pay, and I got commitments that I need to make and you know, fulfill, and I've got you know, this thing that I just said I'm going to do this year, like that's a, there's a lot of busyness that can show up in January, Right? So I wanted to talk about the topic of business. I wanted to talk about what do we do with our time. I think this is a good time of year to do that. Um, there, are, there, are, there are a lot of similarities between time and money. You probably know that. In fact, there's so many similarities between time and money that there's a phrase that is, time is yeah, time is money. And I think that there is a sense in which time is money, but, but not exactly. Um, the biggest difference, I think, between time and money is when it comes to time, you cannot have more of it than your neighbor. Right, you can, you can get more money than the person across the street from you, but you can't get any more hours in your day than they have. We all have the same 24 hours in our day. We all have the same 168 hours in our week. But like money, I think many of us are interested in managing our time well. Like we realize I have a limited amount of it, and so I want to do what I can. There, there are a lot of us that are interested in managing our money well, and so we come up with things like budgets and plans, and I want to make sure the money goes to the right place, and a lot of us want to like stretch a dollar to get like as much as I possibly can for that dollar. And there are a lot of us that that's the way it is with time. We wanna make sure we manage our time well, we wanna make sure our minutes and hours are being used right. And if we could stretch our hours, if we could stretch our days in order to like accomplish more than someone else in the same amount of time, 
Like we're, we're interested in doing that. I wanna be able to use, I wanna accomplish as much as I can with my time. Like that seems to be something that a lot of us are interested in. So I'll use a really famous example of this. Um, it's a, the famous example is from the show Seinfeld. Now, I realize there are some of you who are young enough that Seinfeld was before your time, okay? You're an adult, but you were not, in, you, you were not alive in the 90s, okay? But, but the, the number one comedy in the 90s was Seinfeld. And so but you don't have to understand like the, these characters in order to understand what I'm about to read to you. It should make sense all on its own. But this was from a show that was quite a big deal back in the 90s. Um, I say it was a big deal, it was just very popular. It's not exactly a wholesome show. I'm not like recommending you go back and watch all the episodes. <laughs> I'm just saying I can remember one of the episodes where this topic of time management came up and when I thought about it, I thought, oh, I'm gonna look that up and see what they said. And so this is what they said. So um, all you need to know is there's two characters, Kramer and Seinfeld, and Kramer lives across the hall from Seinfeld. They live in the same apartment building. And so Kramer goes into Seinfeld's living room as he does every episode, okay? He shows up in his living room and he says this. He says, I've been reading this book on Leonardo da Vinci. Anybody remember it so far? Okay, I've been reading this book on Leonardo da Vinci and it turns out the master slept only 20 minutes every three hours. And so then you can see he applies it to himself. He goes, that works out to two and a half extra days that I'm awake per week, every week, which means if I live to be 80, I will have lived the equivalent of 105 years. And then Jerry says back, not to mention how much more you'll accomplish. And then that sets up for what happens in the rest of the show. Um, So it's interesting because... What Kramer thinks he's figured out is, and I don't even know if this is true, I don't know if Leonardo da Vinci did that or not, but he says he read it in a book, that he, that he slept 20 minutes every three hours. But in, in Kramer's mind, what he was doing was, if I could just rearrange some of my time, if I could take sleep that's over here and move it to over here, like if I could rearrange my minutes in such a way that I get a few extra days per week, right, I could live the life of a 105-year-old in 80 years. And then Jerry's response, Jerry Seinfeld's response, seems to me to be typical New Yorker when he goes, not to mention how much you'll accomplish. It's not just you'll have much more time, it's think of all the things you'll achieve with all the time that you have by, by moving your stuff around. Okay, now I will let you know, you don't have to watch the episode. It did not work for Kramer. Um, he keeps falling asleep at like inopportune times all throughout the episode, he almost dies. Um, <laughs> But there are, there, I think there are a lot of us that we look at that and go, that's funny, look, he tried that, and he fell off a bridge, and you know, that's hilarious. Um, and, uh, or no, he didn't fell off, they threw him off a bridge. I don't want to spoil the ending, sorry. Anyway, <laughs> I don't even want you to watch the episode, so it doesn't matter. Okay, the point is, um, you look at the show, and it's funny the way they had him falling asleep and how his life was getting terrible, but I think there are some of us that when we, when we see that kind of thing, we go, oh, yeah, that's funny, but if it were possible, I would be interested in that. If there were some kind of technique, if there were some time, way that I go, I'll sleep at this time instead of this time, or I'll do my work at this point instead of this point, or I'll take these, this hour, I'll move it over to here to be these two half hour things. Like if I could somehow just rearrange my schedule in such a way that it would make, like it would produce extra minutes, it would produce extra hours, like I would be interested in that. I think there are a lot of us in this room that if I could accomplish so much more, if I could just somehow get more time, the whole thing seems very American to me. But I, but I think there's a lot of us that are that way. I would, oh, I, how cool would it be to achieve this in this amount of time if I could just tweak my schedule? What's interesting to me is that God, as revealed in the Bible, does not require us to maximize what we can achieve with our time. God does not push us to live 105 years in 80 years. And not only does God not require us to accomplish as much as we possibly could with the time that we have, God, even at times in the scripture, says to not to try to accomplish 
all that you could possibly accomplish. Now, you maybe some of you go, oh, well, where does he say that? I'll tell you where I get it from. The Ten Commandments. If you have your Bible, go to Exodus chapter 20. Okay? Exodus chapter 20 is one of the most famous chapters in the entire Bible. It is where the Ten Commandments are found. I'm going to read to you the fourth commandment. Here it is. Exodus 20, starting in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Hmm, how do you keep it holy? You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the foreigner who is within your gates. So he says, you're supposed to have a day where you do no work, and, and it's, well, who's the you? Everybody, all of the people, and the children, even the animals. You're all supposed to take a day off. Why? Why would we do this? Verse 11. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them, in six days. And then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Right in the Ten Commandments, it says God was a role model for us, right? He set a pattern for us in this, that he worked and then ceased working. And so should we. It's right in the Ten Commandments. It's so interesting. God does not say, you figure out a way to fit eight days worth of stuff into seven. He doesn't even say to fit seven days worth of stuff into seven. When God first gave his people the law, he only wanted them to accomplish tasks with six-sevenths of their time at most. Isn't that fascinating? I thought that was very interesting, and I think that it's good for us to begin this series with this truth. We're going to be in this series, if the Lord wills, for three weeks, and I think it's good for us to start with us just realizing when it comes to busyness, God told his people not to do as much as they possibly could do, and I think that's important. Now, I am not saying that the opposite of that is true, that, like, that God wants us to accomplish as little as possible. I'm not saying that that's what the Bible says, because it doesn't. In fact, even if you look at the command in the, in the Ten Commandments, the command also spoke of six days of work, right? So I want to be clear in this series. I want to talk about busyness. I want to talk about some of the problems that are associated with busyness. But I do not mean to denigrate work or the accomplishing of things as I talk about the problem of busyness, okay? In fact, I, I, I really want to make clear that I'm not denigrating work, so I'm going to point this out. I actually wrote a book on work, okay? I'm not anti-work. I actually did some work in writing a book about work. The title of the book is Working Our Way Through Life. It's available out, on the, out in the lobby. In fact, I think there will be people who will hand these out to anybody who doesn't have a copy of it. If you don't have a copy of it and you want it, you'll get one for free on your way out. Um, but Working Our Way Through Life is a book that I wrote on work. It's I think, I hope you will read it. It's really easy to read. Like I wrote this book for people like me where I just, I, don't, don't give me something difficult to do. And so, so it, it's 50 pages long. I mean, this is like, you could, you could do it in one setting, okay? But uh, 50 pages on what the Bible says about work. And I will just let you know, nearly half of this book is devoted to declaring the goodness of work, okay? Nearly half the book t- says, God says that work is good, So this series is not supposed to be an excuse to be lazy. As we talk about the problem of busyness, it's not to be like, okay, here's how you handle busyness. Be lazy, don't do anything, all right? This series is not an opportunity for me to act as if all busyness is sinful because I don't believe that. But I do think it would be good for us to establish early on in this series that this is true. You can be too busy, amen? You can, you can be too busy. God does not want... 
his people to have their lives so filled to the brim with tasks and activities and achievements that that it, it pulls them away from him. So that's the introduction to this whole series. It's not necessarily the introduction to this sermon. Like I'm thinking of this series as as its own thing. It's three weeks and I think we should start with understanding that, that, that it is possible to be too busy. So I declare that now. But what I'm saying just now, like what I've said so far, is not necessarily the introduction to this sermon. This sermon is not on the 10 commandments. This sermon is on a different text entirely. It's Luke chapter 10 that we're gonna spend the rest of our time in. So if you have your Bible with you, you turn to Luke chapter 10 at this time. For this sermon, I want to cover the story of Jesus, Mary, and Martha, which is found in Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. Let me read it to you now. While they were traveling, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will not be taken away from her. So this is a, I would say, a medium famous story in the scripture. It's not as famous as the Ten Commandments. It's not as famous as Jesus dying on the cross and rising again, but it is a fairly well-known story. And it's a pretty short story. It's actually just five verses long in the middle of Luke. So let's go through it one verse at a time, starting with verse 38. While they were traveling, he entered a village. So the he there is Jesus, but the they, I assume, since it's plural, is referring to Jesus plus his disciples. So Jesus had pretty much 12 guys that were with him whenever he went anywhere. So if you're picturing this situation in your mind, what did this look like? While they were traveling, he entered a village. I think you need to picture 13 guys walking into a village, okay? And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home, okay? Why in the world did Martha welcome him into her home? Jesus was a traveling preacher, I think at this point, uh, like an itinerant prophet, and he was saying things about God and he would go to different places. And there were not like hotels, like the way we have them, like all over the place. Like it was not easy to just, oh, we'll just stay in that hotel. You couldn't just book an Airbnb and go, now now we know when we get to Capernaum where we're gonna stay, right? The, The way that you would handle this is you would go from town to town and somebody would take you into their home. Um, So Martha welcomes him into her home. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. It's a good thing that she welcomed the Messiah, right? This one who was, who was going around and preaching and revealing about God, like she welcomes him into her home and this is a good thing. So I just wanna point out the start, story starts out really good. I know that if you read the whole thing, you start to think like Martha's the bad guy in this story, but not at the beginning, okay? At the beginning, it says Martha welcomed, her into her, in, welcomed him into her home. And so I wanna start there by saying like, that's good. I hope that you will imitate Martha in that way. Like, I hope all of you here will imitate Martha in that you welcome Jesus into your home. Verse 39, she had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. So Mary is Martha's sister and she's there in this story. Now it could be that Mary and Martha live together and that's why Mary's in the middle of this story because she lives in the same house that Martha does. Or maybe Mary lives in the same village a little bit down the street and then when she hears that you know, this prophet has come speaking the word of God that she you know, shows up and now she's hanging out in the house where it's happening. So I don't know if she's just visiting or if she's living there, but she's there. And her name is Mary and it says, she sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. 
I think if we're trying to picture this story, there might be something that we need to clarify. And that is, what does it mean when it says she sat at the Lord's feet? Because I think that's an expression, but if you don't know it's an expression, you might picture something different than what happened back then. I learned this story, well, actually, I don't know. I grew up in church. I probably learned this story when I was a little kid. And I think probably my earliest memories of the story, I picture it when you're a little kid and you just get taught, Mary sat at the Lord's feet. I think I pictured that the way this went down is Jesus was there in the house. He was standing up and he was like preaching a sermon to the people that were listening. And then Mary's there, like literally at his feet. Like I kind of pictured her on his feet, sort of like cuddling up to him. And then his head is like up here and she's craning her neck like this, like listening to him talk while she's over here by his feet. Okay, that's kind of how I picture it. Did anybody else picture it that way when they were doing a Sunday school? Yeah, so here's the thing. I think probably we were wrong. Um, I think that's probably not what was happening because this phrase, sat at the Lord's feet, I think it was a figure of speech back then that meant to be educated under or to be trained by someone. I'll show it to you in Acts chapter 22, so just so you don't think I make this stuff up. Acts 22, starting in verse 3, is a verse that we learned back when we did the story on the life, uh, we did the series on the life of Paul. And so this is right in the middle of the story of the life of Paul. He's in Jerusalem, he's talking to this big group of people, and he says this. You might remember it from that series. He continued, I am a Jewish man, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the what? at the feet of Gamaliel and educated according to the strict view of our patriarchal law. What does that mean? There is no way that that means that when Paul was young, he was like always crawling around like at Gamaliel's feet every time Gamaliel said anything. Like there's no way. What that means is I was educated by him. I was trained up being a teacher of the law by Gamaliel. So going back to our story, Luke chapter 10, verse 39. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. She probably was one of the people in the room who was being educated by him, who was being trained by him. Verse 40. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. How many tasks did she have? I don't know, many. What were these tasks? What was Martha distracted by? What what were these tasks that she had to do? Well, we don't know for sure because the story doesn't say what the tasks were. But I would say probably the majority of people who study this passage come to the conclusion they probably are tasks related to what, Ma- what Martha had just agreed to do two verses earlier, which was in verse 38 when Martha welcomed him into her home. Okay? She welcomes him into her home and suddenly she has many tasks. What are they? Probably things related to welcoming up to 13 people suddenly into your home. Right? She, I assume, wouldn't have been prepared like, well, yeah, this is just when 13 people show up. I'm just ready for that. Like, she didn't know they were coming. I don't see how she could have. They did like, Jesus couldn't text, like, hey, we'll be there at four, you know, and she gets everything ready. Like, they showed up, and suddenly it's like, whoa, I got to find a bunch of places to sleep for a bunch of people, and I got to make way more food than I was going to make tonight, and we got to go to the well and get a bunch more water than what we had, okay? So she's got a bunch of tasks that she's going to do because she's welcomed this man and his followers into her home. So what's the problem? Like, could, is it a sin to have many tasks, right? Is that the problem? Well, what was she doing many tasks for? That's the problem. Is it a sin to have many tasks? I don't think so. In fact, I think I can prove to you that it's not a sin to have many tasks because the word that's used here that's translated many tasks is a word that in other places in the Bible is clearly not a sin, but a good thing. I can remember this. I didn't even look it up this week. I can remember it from back um, in October when we did our series on spiritual gifts. And we talked about this uh, Greek word, diakonos, which means to serve. It's the word that's used here for tasks. 
if you translated this verse a little more literally, it's, but Martha was distracted by her much serving. Martha was distracted by her much serving. But this word, serving, okay, which is translated here, tasks, is the word that's used in Romans chapter 12 for the spiritual gift of service. Like back in October, when we talked about spiritual gifts, we said there's this thing, diakonos, there's this gift of service, that there are people that are particularly wired to be able to serve, and so God wants them to do much service. So serving in Romans chapter 12 very, very clearly is not a sin. In fact, it's more than just not a sin. It's something that Christians are supposed to do. And here Martha is doing it. She's doing a bunch of this thing that you're supposed to do. Martha was distracted by her much serving. Okay, so it's not that 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 wasn't a sin. So then what was the problem? So it seems to me the problem must be that Martha was distracted by her much serving. Distracted from what? Distracted from who? It seems to me she was distracted from her original mission. If you remember back in verse 38, the whole point of this was she welcomed Jesus into her home. Why did she welcome Jesus into her home? I mean, it doesn't say, but I think the motivation's not hard to figure out. Like she's trying to show like love and care and support for him. He's going around preaching the word and there she is going, wow, this is a prophet of God. I don't remember if she if she realized he was the Messiah at this point or not, but at the very least, she would have known this is a traveling prophet who's saying the word of God. So I wanna take him into my home because we, want, we love him, we honor him, we want to respect him, we want to provide for him, we want to care for him. So if that's her goal, show love and respect and comfort to the prophet, then it seems to me she got distracted from her original mission because look what she does. She's distracted by her many tasks. And so she went up to him and she said what? She said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. What is she doing here? It seems to me she's rebuking him and bossing him around. Do you see it? First of all, the way I see rebuking him is, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Now, I realize that's not necessarily a rebuke. It's a question, right? She's asking, don't you care that my sister left me to serve alone? But I think most of you are old enough to know that a question can be asked in such a way that's an accusation, right? Have you ever had someone do that to you? And then you were like, what? And then they went, I was just asking a question, right? And you're like, no, you were doing more than asking a question. And I think that's what's happening here. I think, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone was a way of saying, I think you don't care the amount that you should about this, or you would have done something about it by now. And then she says, so tell her to give me a hand. Think about that. Martha is bossing around the Lord, She's going up to the Lord and saying, this is what I think you ought to be doing instead of what you're doing. Who does she think she is, right? It seems like she's been distracted by something. She's lost sight of what she was trying to do, right? And now she's rebuking and and you you tell her this. So look what Jesus says back. Look at verse 41. The Lord answered her. Martha, Martha. He says her name twice. I assume that's to communicate like some level of like gentleness, like you matter. I'm not trying to be dismissive. I'm not saying you don't, you don't matter. Like I'm not, I'm not being mean here. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Isn't that interesting? That's what Jesus said when he looked at the situation. You're worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. So Jesus contrasts here the many things with the one thing. You're concerned about many things. You're upset and you're worried about many things, but there is one thing that is needed. And it seems that he's saying the, the, the one necessary thing 
is the most important thing. And you've left that off your to-do list. So, again, we need to ask the question, what exactly is the problem here? When he says, you're worried and upset about many things, but one thing is needed, is, is the point to say, we shouldn't do many things, we should only do one thing? Is that the point of the passage, right? Is it wrong to do many things? And is what God's will is, is God wants you to not ever do many things, he just always wants you to do one thing? Is that the point of the passage? Yeah, I think you're right. The person I think is right is the one I heard say no. <laughs> and and I, I think you can see why it's important to get this right. We want to figure out, well, what does this have to do with our life? And we don't want to walk away from this going, okay, I think this is what it means, okay? It means I need to quit my job and just read the Bible all day, every day, right? I don't think this passage was put in here for us to, to apply it that way, right? No, your job, goodness gracious, your job, why would you have a job? There's like, they give you a list of stuff to do. <laughs> don't do stuff. Like, just do the one thing. Just read the, you need to know God. Just read his word all day, every day. That's all you got to do, right? I mean, that would, that would kind of destroy the world, wouldn't it? Or if you're a student here, right? I, the the, the point of this passage is not to say like, hey, drop out of school and watch YouTube sermons all day because that's what matters. You need to understand God. You don't need to be doing many things. Goodness, great. History, math, science, <laughs> That doesn't matter. You need to just study the one thing that matters. I don't believe that's the path. And the reason I don't believe that's the point of this passage is that doesn't match the rest of the Bible. Okay, so what do we do with it? Well, let's first notice, Jesus did not say, Martha, Martha, you were wrong for attempting many things, right? That's not what he says. He didn't say you were wrong because you attempted many things. He says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. Martha, that's the problem here. You are, it's not that there's, oh, it's not like the, to, the to-do list is too long. It's you're all worried and upset about all this. So you are caught up in these things, Martha. These things were beginning to negatively affect her, negatively affecting her emotions, negatively affecting her relationships. I think you can see that in the passage, right? They're obviously negatively affecting her emotions because Jesus says you're worried and upset. I assume that they were starting to negatively affect her relationships because she's like jealous of Mary and she's disrespecting Jesus, it sounds like. You're worried and upset about many things. These things are, are negatively affecting you that you are all caught up in them. It seems to me Martha had allowed her long to-do list to take her focus off of the one thing that truly mattered, Jesus. So my point for this sermon if I could like take the whole sermon and just summarize it into one sentence. My point here is busyness can distract you from what really matters. In fact, I think a better way to say it is <laughs> busyness can distract you from who really matters. Let's look at the final phrase. But one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, right? So he's, he's saying Martha is seeing this wrongly. Right? Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. It seems to me there are two ways to take this little final phrase that Jesus says. And, and either way you take it, I think it's true. Like, I don't know which one of these two things I'm about to tell you. I don't know which one of them Jesus meant, but it seems to me whichever one he meant, it was true either way. It seems to me that when he says it will not be taken away from her, he could be talking about the short term or he could be talking about the long term. If it's the short term, I think maybe he would, he would be saying is, he'd be saying to Martha, Mary has an opportunity 
to be trained and educated by me right now. And so I'm not taking that opportunity away from her. Like I know that, in other words, you'd be saying to Martha, like I've heard your request and the answer is no. I know you want me to ask her to leave the living room and go in the kitchen with you. And the answer is no, I'm not gonna take the opportunity away from her. That's one way that this could be that he's saying. It will not be taken away from her, meaning by, from Jesus. Or Jesus could be talking about the long-term ramifications of all this. And it will not be taken away from her in the long term. In other words, when you choose Jesus, he cannot be taken away from you. When you choose to listen to Jesus, that cannot be taken away from you. When I was a kid, um, I went to a Sunday school class. In fact, my, my whole childhood, my mom took me to church with her and I went to a lot of Sunday school classes. And one particular one I remember, I was, I don't know for sure, I'm gonna guess maybe I was 13 years old. We were there in the Sunday school class and there weren't a lot of other kids in the class. I think maybe there was like five, six other kids and the Sunday school teacher. And the, and the Sunday school teacher asked us, he actually, he gave us all five slips of paper and he asked, uh, asked us to write on the five slips of paper the five most important things to us, okay? So we were supposed to write down, you know, whatever it was, friends and school and mom and dad and whatever. We were supposed to write down whatever the five things that we, like, were most valuable to us. And so we did it. And then when we were done, he said, okay, now I want you to take um, one of those five slips and I just want to ask you, if you had to pick one of them to get rid of, what would it be? You know, and of course, we were like, we don't want to get rid of any of them. This is our five favorite things. And he said, yeah, but that's not the question. The question is, if you were in a situation where you could hang on to the four most important things to you, but you were going to lose one of them, which one would you pick? And he was teaching us, obviously, like priorities. We had already put down the five most important things to us on paper, but now he was trying to get us to rank them, right? He was, he was training us to figure out, okay, how, how do you determine which one is fifth place? Well, which one would you get rid of if you had to? And so he took it and, uh, yeah, I, I don't remember if I wrote school, but if so, yeah, that probably would have gone away. Um, so, I, so we ripped up the paper or threw it in the trash can or whatever it is, and we had four slips of paper left. And then he said, okay, of the four, and you, if you had to get rid of one, which one would it be? And so we had to pick what was fourth place, and we got rid of that one, and there was three, and then he did it again, and he did it again until we were just down to one slip of paper. And then he said to us, something like this. He said, is the thing that's on your last slip of paper something that you can never lose? Isn't that powerful? That's so powerful, and I still remember it to this day. And in fact, I wanted to say something real quick. This, we'll just pause. This is not really part of the sermon. If you're here today, and you're someone who like, helps out at KidZone, but you're not there right now, you're in here right now, but sometimes you're helping out in KidZone, or you're someone who is like a leader at the youth Bible study, if you get to the point ever where you're thinking like, oh, I don't even know if what I'm doing matters. You know, I teach these lessons to these kids, and like, are they going like, to remember this one day when they're an adult? Okay, I don't know if you've ever, ever got to that point where you're like, I'm, I'm teaching these, you know, whatever, 12-year-olds this thing. Are they even going to remember this one day? There's no way they're going to remember this when they're an adult. And I say to that, baloney. I am 43 years old, and I can remember stuff that was taught to me when I was a kid. I can remember stuff that I learned back then. And I have a particularly good memory. So maybe not everybody's like that. Some of us are like that. And then there are other people who do not remember every single thing they learned when they were in children's ministry and in youth group. But that doesn't mean that those things, as they were learning them, didn't point them in a particular direction at the time that is still affecting them now as an adult. So don't think you're wasting your time on that. You're not. All right, back to the sermon. So the Sunday school teacher 
said, the thing that's on that last slip of paper, is it something that could never be taken away from you? Or is it something that could be taken away from you? And at that point, of course, if he hadn't said it out, you know, if he hadn't made it really clear, we, we'd got the point at that point, like, oh, that last slip of paper was supposed to say God. And we realized, I hope, maybe I hope the other ones all realized it, we realized, like, that's really important. The last slip of paper has to be God because don't you want the thing, after you've lost everything else, to be something that you can never lose? Like, if the thing that's on your last slip of paper is money, or if it's your reputation, or your status, or your comfort in life, or your wife, or your husband, or your children, or your friends, or whatever it may be. Like, what happens when you lose that thing? What happens when you lose the job? What happens when you lose the money? What happens if you, you, if you put your whole life into your spouse, what happens if they divorce you? What happens if they die? They're gonna die eventually. Either you will or they will. What happens if your kids abandon you? What happens if your kids die? Like, if the thing that's on your last slip of paper is something you can lose... What are you going to do on that day if it happens? Like, what, what, will life even be worth living if your highest treasure has just been taken away from you? The point is your highest treasure should be God, the one that you can never lose. So it seems to me that when we think about making God our highest priority, a lot of us think of it as a one-time event. Right? That there is this moment where we go, okay, God is my, one, my highest priority. I decide it now. Okay? In fact, a lot of times we think of it as a one-time event that's connected with our conversion because that, that actually happened for a lot of us. When I say our conversion, I mean there are people who this happened to you, and I think this happens pretty much to all of us who have come to know Jesus. I mean, unless you became a Christian so young that you can't remember this. But for a lot of us, there came a point where you realized like, whoa, Jesus Christ is the Lord and the Savior. And I realize now I want him to be my Lord and my Savior. Okay, so I trust in him. I place my faith in him. And he forgives me, right? God forgives you. Like Jesus, because he died on the cross for your sins, wipes away your sin, wipes away your shame, wipes away the condemnation, sends his spirit into you to take up residence in you so that your life changes. And so there are a lot of us that that happened. We placed our faith in Jesus Christ and our life changed. And there really was this reprioritizing that happened where God became our, our number one treasure. But here's the thing. Do you believe that that happens? And then, okay, you do that once and then you never have to think about that again. <laughs> no, right? It, it seems to me, I'm assuming your experience bears witness to this, that you would just be, oh, of course not. No, it seems to me there are some of us who truly can be followers of God but we get distracted. You ever get distracted? It seems to me human beings, even Christian human beings, need to be recalibrated. And so every once in a while, I think you should ask yourself a question like this. And when I say every once in a while, I mean like today as one of those times. Ask yourself a question like this. Which things in my life need to be reprioritized? Or maybe you phrase it this way. What is it that's distracting me from the one that matters most? Or maybe you say it this way. Like, in light of the gospel, what should I be not as concerned about? Like, in light of the gospel, let me remind you. Like, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins in your place so that there would be no condemnation for you. 
And so that you would be rescued, he rose again and will raise you again one day so that you will live with him forever in a world where there's no bad things, okay? We talked about this um, on Christmas Eve. Do you remember? That God is literally saving us from every bad thing. So in light of the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins to save you from every bad thing, what are some things that you need to be less worried about and upset about right now? I mean, this is a question, I guess, that's designed to get you to think about what's going on in your heart. It's not about the, the list of the things on the to-do list. It's which things am I all worried and upset about? Or maybe one more way to ask this is, what is something that you should just stop doing altogether because it pulls you away from the Lord? So if the Lord wills, we'll talk about this more next week and the week after. Let's pray. God, I ask that by the power of your spirit, you would apply your word to our life. I was reminded this morning, a friend of mine told me that he was listening to a friend of his that's a pastor, and he said some, one time the pastor got up and just felt like he really was preaching well, and there was no response. And then one time he felt like he was just really dry and robotic, and it made all the difference in the world to the listeners. It was just a reminder that you do incredible things with your word that are not dependent on how good the guy talking is. And so I just ask for that this morning, your blessing on this time and in our lives as we walk out of here and as we ask ourselves the question, what is distracting me? I just pray you'd give us clarity in our mind and courage to do what you've called us to do and the ability to trust you in it. I thank you for that. I, th I mean, I assume that when you gave the Ten Commandments to the Israelites, I mean, I don't know how they interpreted it, but it may very well be that they thought like, wow, we've got to try to accomplish in six days what all the nations around us get to do in seven. I don't know if it made sense to them or not. But I thank you for building like a pattern of rest into your law so that we could look at this and we could go, Wow. I'm not even obligated to try to accomplish everything I could possibly accomplish. I thank you for that because I think we all, at some point we all come to a point where we realize that's a burden too big for us to bear anyway. And so we thank you. We thank you for the gift of rest. We pray you'd help us to use it well, that we would rest the right amount, that we would not be lazy, but that we would not fill our lives with so many things that we're distracted from you. I thank you for the story of Mary and Martha and I pray that you would help us to, to imitate Martha and Mary in the ways that we ought and not in the ways we ought not. So I pray that you would help us to be people who are not worried and upset about many things getting dragged away from that which is most important, which is you. And we declare that right now, you are what is most important. So we ask for your help in not being dragged away from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.